Bonner, and welcome to The Movie Passport, a podcast series about world cinema. Today, we'll be traveling to the country of South Africa. My name is Duncan, or Valkorist on the internet, and joining me to chat about South African cinema, we have... Hey everyone, it's Bina, or Bina007 on the interweb. Hi there, this is Glenn, Tycho Strippers on Discord. And this is Jock, I'm also Jock on Discord. Great. Well, thanks everyone for coming. Um, Before we get into our main discussion, I'd like to give the listener a brief history of South Africa and its film industry. So South Africa is the southernmost country in Africa. It contains some of the oldest human fossil sites in the world and has been called the cradle of civilization. At the time of European contact in the 15th century, the two major indigenous groups were the Zosa people and the Zulu people. During the 17th century, the Dutch established a colony in the Cape of Good Hope. The European farmers that lived there became known as the Boers, and as they expanded inland, engaged in several wars with the Zosa tribes. During the 18th century, the British seized the Cape Colony as part of their empire. This prompted many Boers to vacate the colony and establish the republics of South Africa, Natalia, and the Orange Free State. Meanwhile, the Zulu leader, Shaka, was greatly increasing the power and territory of his people. In the mid-19th century, gold and diamonds were discovered in the country's interior, causing the British and the Boers to intensify their efforts to subdue the indigenous people. This led to the Anglo-Zulu War, in which the Zulu Kingdom won several battles but were eventually defeated by the United Kingdom. The Boer Republic successfully resisted British encroachments using guerrilla warfare tactics, but were also eventually conquered. During the 20th century, the minority white population of South Africa introduced a system of racial segregation and oppression against the majority black population. This policy was called apartheid, and it was only after significant domestic and international opposition that the policy was finally repealed at the end of the century. Early South African films tended to be produced by foreign filmmakers who made use of the country's stunning landscapes. The first film studio was established in Johannesburg in 1915 by an American businessman. Notable early films include De Vortrekkers and Sarah Maria, both of which retell important events from Boer history and cater to white Afrikaans-speaking audiences. British co-productions dramatized other historical events, such as the Gold Rush, the Zulu War, and Apartheid. The first South African film to achieve international acclaim and recognition was the 1980 comedy The Gods Must Be Crazy, written, produced, and directed by Jamie Oos. In the 21st century, there has been a growing trend of using Johannesburg and Cape Town as locations for blockbuster science fiction films such as The Avengers, The Dark Tower, and Maze Runner. Celebrated contemporary South African filmmakers include Gavin Hood, Oliver Hermanus, and Neil Blomkamp. Celebrated actors include Charlize Theron, Arnold Vosloo, 
John Carney and Sasha Pietrus. Um, okay, so there is a very brief recap. My question to you guys is, do you have any connection to South Africa or have you watched many South African films? Not many. Um, and I didn't realize, I guess, South Africa was a very popular filming destination for like the Avengers films, like you were saying. Because hmm. um, I, I know that um, New Zealand, that's a very popular, well-known filming location, but I didn't really make the connection that South Africa would be used a lot. Um, mm-hmm. But very, very little um, South African films I've watched myself. Same here for me. Um, I guess I only watch the South African films that somehow get big enough to get released over in the UK, so I'm not a massive expert, and my picks will be, I think, probably some of the better-known or more obvious ones. Yeah, I'm very much the same. Like The only thing I could think of initially was District 9, so I had to go out and seek South African films that had been popular or acclaimed. Um, because, yeah, off the top of my head, I couldn't think of anything. Um, which is interesting, because like it is at least partially an English-speaking country and like a former, former Commonwealth country, those countries, um, you know, Britain, Ireland, Australia, New Zealand, America, seem to have like a sort of a, a circulation of films. But for some reason, South Africa doesn't quite have that engagement, you know, English-speaking countries the way those countries do. Um, but that's, that's kind of what's exciting, I think, about this episode. We'll be sort of exposing ourselves to films we've, we've never heard of. Um, and hopefully the listener can, can hear about some things. Um, as well. Um, So today, each host has chosen a film about South Africa or set in South Africa. uh, And I believe, Bina, you'll be starting us off. Okie dokie. So I'm starting off with, as you said, probably the one film that if people have heard of a South African film, it's District 9. It was, I was shocked to discover it was released in 2009. So it's a long time ago. But I feel that a lot of its themes really hold up to date. Um, what I really love about it, it's directed by a guy called Neil Blomkamp, who also did Chappie, which we could potentially talk about as well in 2015. Um, for those of you in more the American mainstream movie, you might remember him as the director who did Elysium, which was another sci-fi film starring Matt Damon, which I didn't actually see. Um, but 2009 was his, I guess, breakout hit, and also the breakout hit of its star, Charlotte Copley, who for a while got a bit of play in some of the mainstream American films too. It's set in Johannesburg and it's kind of like, as all his films, a bit of a dystopian future with (coughs) Joe Berg kind of on the verge of social and economic collapse. Those of you who've been to Johannesburg, as I have, will know that that's not far off the truth. Um, But what I really love about it is it takes, you know, typical mainstream films, if there's an alien invasion... The aliens are coming usually with superior weaponry and intelligence, and they may come in peace or not, but they're definitely on top of humans. Whereas in this one, they, they kind of come and they're hovering over Joburg rather than Manhattan. And um, they're really sick. They're really not in a good state. And eventually what happens is humans kind of make contact and they come down to Earth as kind of like refugees, sickly refugees, And they're herded into a ghetto, word used advisedly, called District 9. And so you obviously are then straight away in these parallels to, um, you know, the situation in South Africa under apartheid, where you had a population, admittedly a majority population in that case, um, put in ghettos and kept away from the main white population. 
Um, and so Charlotte Copley plays a cop, I guess, called Vickers van der Merwe. <laughs> and he's one of these like complete jobs worth bureaucrats who likes to sort of, you know, have the law on his side and impose it to the ninth degree. Um, and he starts off basically as quite an unpleasant chap. Um, but as the as the movie goes on, it becomes kind of like a crazy buddy movie almost, where you see him softening towards the aliens, or the prawns as they call them, derogatorily if that's the word um, I don't want to give away the reason why or the kind of the, the dynamic reason why he might decide that he might want to sort of take the prawns to his heart but, um, and it ends in a sort of like quite gonzo sort of buddy action movie, so it's part sci-fi part action it's also done in a way that I really like, which is almost like trying to replicate documentary. So there's kind of fake documentary footage. You get box pop CCTV. <clears throat> so I feel as the film is quite sort of innovative and in sort of how it makes a collage to create its impact. But obviously just a very, very on the nose political satire, which I think, you know, in our current day, where there's still, you know, suspicion of immigrants and refugees and the other um, it's a really good film. It, actually, I watched it this week and I felt I loved it when it came out and I felt it really held up. So curious to see what the rest of you think. Yeah, I, I love this film. It's probably one of my favorite science fiction films. Um, I loved it when it came out and I loved watching it again. And I think it's just a great mix of action and ideas like, it's a really compelling film just on an action point of view. Um, it's really imaginatively created. I love the sort of pseudo-documentary presentation, for at least, you know, for the first third of the film. I love the really grungy aesthetic. Like, it's not a, it's not a glossy... I mean, it's obviously there's elements of futurism and science fiction, but it doesn't have that glossy sheen of a lot of science fiction films especially that we're used to now, like it's the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's much more like this kind of 80s Robocop Terminator alien grunginess. And that combined with the, the sort of found footage aspect just makes it feel really real and lived in and um, sort of textual. And yeah, I loved it. What did you guys think? You know, I was really shocked when Bina had said it was 2009 because um, I remember at the time I did know about the film, but I, I haven't watched it until this week, really. Um, but I did know about it at the time when it was released. I think I seen, you know, it was number number one at the box office. I had seen that, but I had always <laughs> thought that it was much later than two thousand nine, so maybe like two thousand twelve, two thousand thirteen. Mm. Because the first thing I thought when I seen the title District Nine is I thought of the Hunger Games. And, you know, there's a place in that series called District 9. I know that the movie wasn't about that, but it just stood out as, oh, The Hunger <coughs> Games. So, yeah, surprising that it was 2009, which is before I even read The Hunger Games. Um, but, yeah, um, really loved this film, loved the, the style of it. The um, You know, Bina points out in the, the document about um, the documentary style of it and the interviews, the... Um, the the way they talk about it on the news and then they flip to um, drama with um, and how of course the main character interacts with the aliens 
Um, so yeah, really loved that and um, great choice. Been um, really enjoyed the film. Yeah, and and the way like the the sort of opening explanation of the film is describing something that's happened, and the fact that it's set in South Africa, it's set someplace we're not usually have a lot of knowledge about necessarily, um, at least here in Australia. It almost has this aspect of like, wait, was this something that actually happened? Like the <laughs> fact that it's it's presented so realistically, or or, or using the sort of modes. Uh, that we associate with credibility and authenticity uh, with all these very, very um, stoic talking heads and this grainy footage. And I don't know, it was just really well done and believable. Did, did they say that the alien spacecraft that had been there for 20 years? Uh, yeah, I think the initial landing of the, or the initial arrival of the spacecraft was in the 80s. And then that's where ah. they, they broke into it and found all of these dying aliens and they set up District 9. Um, and initially it was, you know, had a lot of oversight and and there was a lot of pressure on them to, to treat the aliens humanely. But eventually it was taken over by this um, um, corporation and sort of fell into decline. And there's a lot of racial um, or, or, or speciest tension with the with the surrounding communities and then you know gradually the, the the prawns were more and more dehumanized and oppressed over time so there's a sort of it, it does a really great job and a really efficient job of creating this world and this sort of history to this world where it's sort of pre- presenting a kind of a believable society um, and i think i read somewhere that many of the interviews or at least a few of the interviews where some of the locals are describing their disdain for the prawns were actually taken from interviews about people talking about disdain for just refugees in general and they've just kind of copied and pasted you know actual news footage into it to make it make it look like they're talking about the alien species but they're really just talking about other groups of people that have come into South Africa yeah it's it's really on the nose I remember at the time when this came out um, in Britain we had the brewings right of the anti-immigrant um, feeling and there was a big refugee camp in Songat so a lot of the refugees coming to England sort of end up in France on the coast in a big kind of holding pen which looks very district nine-ish and yeah you could you could literally watch this film and switch on the nine o'clock news and see very similar phraseology um so it's it's just on the nose it really gets it right but I love when Neil Blomkamp I think in all of his films he manages to sort of you know they're not three and a half hour epic Avengers Marvel type runtimes they're quite lean relative Mm. to modern sci-fi action films and he does have a talent for really creating and establishing a, a world, right? I think it's it's quite amazing how he does that with his writing and how he uses footage. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting how the prawns, as they're called, as they're called, are not initially um, like they are quite foreign or or sort of scary looking or alien looking. Um, they're not necessarily like cuddly ET creatures that you can immediately sympathize with. And you're almost put in the position of these sort of xenophobic characters who look at these creatures as disgusting and animalistic. And your initial thinking is, oh, these things are creepy. I don't want to, I don't want them to get near me. So they, they've presented a world in which the, you can understand to a point, if, even if you don't condone this sense of aversion to these creatures but at the same time the more you get to know them the more the sort of human characteristics i mean human in inverted commas or the the more sympathetic 
aspects of these creatures come to light or, or individual characters come to light. And by the same token, the more sort of brutal and cruel and sadistic and inhuman qualities of the human characters um, are, are made evident. So it's kind of, I like that idea yeah, of what, what does it even mean to be a human? I mean, human's not even the right word when you're dealing with different species, but what does it even mean to be uh, a, a good and um, sentient or, or whatever you want to call it, compassionate, a higher sort of thinking life form versus a sort of animalistic and territorial and cruel, basing your decisions on instincts rather than compassion and, and higher learning and things like that. That's not a, a, a quality that's necessarily um, unique or, the, or that human beings have a monopoly on. That's something that you have to work towards as individuals. Um, and some people I have completely it, some agree. People it reminds me a lot of the Frankenstein story, you know, like who is the monster? Is it Dr. Frankenstein or is it the monster? And this idea that Vickers van der Merwe is a human but doesn't really have humanity as we mm. would just define it until events unfold. I have to say, watching this in the wake of a pandemic also just was quite interesting. This idea of these aliens as being sick, potentially infectious, it sort of, that added a new piquant spin to it as well. <laughs> and the idea that sort of, you know, public health, public sanitation is everybody's business, it's everybody's problem. Um, so, yeah, I think it's such a good film, right? It just has layers. It, it really delivers. Yeah, and, and on that theme of Frankenstein, the sense in which... Uh, society is um, complicit in creating these conditions of suffering and squalor and dehumanization that cause uh, these group of uh, alien life forms to become diseased and angry and riotous and distrustful and violent to a point. It's like, you know, what, what responsibility do you have for, you know, treating them as monsters and then and then why are you <laughs> why are you surprised when they fulfill that role that you've cast for them yeah completely agree you know we live with the monsters we create which i guess brings you to chappy in a way what did you think of the film jock Have, did you get a chance to see it yeah um i saw it in 2009 and um I don't remember if I saw it before or after avatar but i got the strong impression it was a sort of like anti-avatar and I feel like um, like comparing the two is a good sort of like example of um, how chew and not do um, these sort of stories of um, anti-colonialism. Mm. But like I think um, in the book post-colonialism of Avatar, um, it uh, deconstructs Avatar and. Uh, um, and shows why it's um, not really um, very good um, in terms of uh, post-colonial narrative and that the enforces colonial power dynamics. Um, I wouldn't say that um, District 9 is anti in that sense. I'd say it's more of an experience of a theme park of the other um, because I think um, like the otherization of the plans is um, an intentional and very good one. Um, at some points, like um, it interferes with the allegory, like um, like having some of the things to make the pawns disgusting, and uh, makes the allegory break down, like um, when like they're destroying their own stuff and things, and being irrationally violent and things. Um, I think that um, plays into um, 
standard colonial power structures. Um, and obviously having Wickus as the main lead, um, much like Avatar, also creates um, that problem. But um, to lesser extent, because Wickus is just um, horrible as a person mm-hmm. and uh, a redemption. So I think that um, stops it from being the white saver trope. But um, at the same time, I don't think it goes as far as disrupting any form of um, colonial power dynamic um, in the cultural text. But um, as a theme park of the other, um, I think it does a really good job um, at sort of like explaining racism to non-racists using the emotion of disgust and um, how um, like um, disgust was one of the leading factors in racism historically um so, as so, in the... so sorry when you say a theme park of the other do you mean it creates this kind of fantasy world in which you can in which you're almost placed in the position of the racist seeing these kind of alien or monstrous others is that what you mean yeah i mean like that's why i think the text main goal was and i think they succeeded in it well, it's interesting, like the comparisons to Avatar, because that one of the one of the few criticisms I've, I've seen of District Nine, um, you know, and it is a it is a, a rich and interesting film that's exploring like the legacy of colonialism and apartheid in, in an allegorical sense, um, and you know, xenophobia and the way that totalitarianism emerges out of uh, out of fear or to take advantage of fear. Um, but the film has been criticized for all, for like Avatar exploiting this kind of white savior narrative. Like Vickis is initially quite immoral, amoral, unethical, and indifferent to the suffering of the prawns and complicit in their exploitation as all the other characters. And it's only through having to see the world through their eyes or be treated um, with the same dehumanization that he's able to understand you know, some of the error of his ways. But by the same token, it's ultimately but as, him but as that a, helps. On a technical level, like to be a bit spoilery, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not white savior because he's not. He he becomes othered, right? Like like physically. Like, but it's different to Avatar, where someone puts on like a. I mean, I haven't seen Avatar since it came out, where someone puts on basically blackface, right? Like he he does become biologically changed. So that predates. I don't know if you're technically a white saver when you're no longer white, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe not white saviour, but human saviour or, 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 you know, he, he is he is changed into the prawn, but I don't know, still has, I don't know, some kind of <laughs> human privilege that allows him to be the hero. Um, but I don't think that's necess- that criticism is necessarily earned because in, in, a, in a lot of ways, like Christopher was was on the on the verge of achieving this victory or this escape only for Vickers to ruin it. Um, so it's almost like Vickers is having to atone for that. Um, and Christopher very much is you know, the, the key agent in this thing because is mostly there to help. So I don't know if that's entirely like he's the hero. Like Christopher seems like much more. Of a yeah, hero yeah, yeah, exactly. The hero succeeds despite a Vickers. I mean, Vickers is almost like the comedy, the dark comedy sidekick, right? Yeah. Like the bumping fool. Yeah. 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 I, I don't agree with that criticism, but I, I know some people, that's something that's been kind of leveled against it. Yeah. There's also some problematic racial coding 
within the text. Um, I don't think that was intentional. Yeah, the sort of Nigerian warlord slash cannibal is a bit is a bit strange to have in a film about racism and then to have that sort of. Well, it's the one thing that both white and black South Africans are united in, isn't it? Is their like despite despicable Nigerian hatred. <laughs> Oh dear. That made me laugh though, because um, my family was born in Kenya and like within Africa, there are kind of like just how like English people would have tropes about Scots and vice versa. There are like mm. Kenyans would view um, Ethiopians and like it just struck me as almost, well, am I giving it too much credit and saying it's kind of satirizing that too? Like, let's make a comedic baddie. I don't know. Um, it felt very true to form though. Yeah. And I guess to me, that character is to me, just as sort of grotesque and villainous as the the military captain that operates on behalf of the corporation. And in, in, in a way that that captain is able to create far more misery and suffering than the than this sort of petty warlord. Um, but I don't know, they both seem just like cut from the same cloth in a way, just these sadistic, power-hungry people that, you know, use the tools that are available yeah. to them. And, and their white character just has a, a greater arsenal of tools but at the same token, is is given this cloak of respectability that the, the Nigerian so I thought warlord that was doesn't the have. Point. Yeah, that, that basically you've got the Nigerian warlord, who's the stock baddie in the sort of South African media context, and then you're making this powerful point about how well the white guy running the corporation, or the sort of with the military heft of the so to say respectability of being a corporate man, is just as bad. But as I say, maybe I'm just being a bit too generous, and it wasn't as intended as that. Yeah, it's hard to say. Like, I can see why people would be upset about it, but yeah, I don't have any strong opinions on it. Um, it might have just been a, a blunder. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I loved it. I don't really have much more to say about it, but it's it's an awesome science fiction film. I think it's it's just I can watch it again and again. It's just eminently rewatchable. It's it's interesting and complex, but at a basic level, it's just hugely entertaining. Um, did you want to talk a bit about Chappie, Bina? Or maybe just a short teaser, we don't really need to discuss it, but just to encourage people, if you do watch District 9 and you really enjoy it, Neil Blomkamp did do a follow-up in 2015 called Chappie, um, again set in Johannesburg, so again, like a really interesting novel setting for those of us used to American set films. And this time the topic is AI, but a lot of the themes are similar. So basically you've got a very early Dev Patel, he's created an AI robot um, that gets kidnapped. And this very childlike, beautiful, kind of whimsical character gets taken in and becomes essentially a sort of mean, angry teenager, one might say, called nicknamed Chappie, who goes a bit violent. And it, I think it speaks to what we were saying in District 9 about if you take something inherently good and then just treat it or put it in an environment where you're going to bring the worst out of it or give it bad examples, are you going to be that surprised, you know, when it turns out to have violent tendencies? So I think this one is much more, it's less about apartheid, although linked, and much more about the breakdown of law and order. And I think that, um, you know, that's obviously a massive topic in South Africa, even in contemporary or maybe even more so in contemporary life. You also get... Um, Chappie being played in motion capture by Charlto Copley. So I think this is probably the era when a lot of the gains we'd seen from Lord of the Rings and Smeagol were being put into greater use. And I think it's, again, it's a really brilliantly 
darkly comic turn by Copley. I think he's really interesting. I don't think it's as sophisticated um, as District 9. I think that is in some ways the better film, but it's just very, I find it to be still incredibly enjoyable and sort of in, in some senses far more funny because the character of Chappie um, is just rendered very brilliantly. Um, so, yeah, that's just a little quick um, suggestion that if you like District 9, maybe check out Chappie too. Yeah, it was a fun film. Um, only problem is, like, um, a minor nuisance is that um, Blomkamp just keeps on not playing by his own rules. Like, he'll set up rules for, like, how the AI works, but then just forget about them and ignore them. Yeah, I think that I think that's probably valid. I think he probably cares more about the political and social satire than the sci-fi. So if you're a true sci-fi purist, maybe he's not the director for you. But if, like me, you're more interested in the sort of, like, political social satire... Um, and just want a good time, then maybe he's more for you. <laughs> um, did you want to tell us about your film, Glenn? Yeah, of course. So though, for those that don't know, Sky TV is a quite popular TV service within the UK and other countries. Um, there, there are about 11 million subscribers to Sky TV. They, they had, I'm sure it was on a Wednesday, they had World Cinema. So similar to... I guess the the concept of this podcast that helped me discover a lot of foreign movies, um, not necessarily foreign language. Um, some of them were in English, but just produced in other countries. Um, so, so I watched um, quite a lot of the movies that came on the the World Cinema Day, um, and Spud was one of those those movies. So set in South Africa, so that's why that. Um, when you suggested the podcast, this is the first movie that I, I thought of uh, because I remember really loving this movie and the series of movies. So Spud is part of a trilogy of movies and based on a popular book series, there were four books, three movies, um, set in a boarding school. It's um, a coming-of-age film. Uh, the main character is John Milton and most um, I guess the actor portraying him has since gone on to become a pop star, so a choice fan. Uh, but he started off in acting. Uh, one of the key things is each of the characters within the movie have a nickname. Uh, so not just the, the pupils, but also the teachers. So set during the 1990s, John Melton, after the other boys see him in the shower, um, he has no pubic hair, so they nickname, nickname him Spud. Um, he has he is sent to an elite boarding school for boys. Um, I guess there's quite a class difference too. Um, so we learn that Spud is there on a scholarship. When he first arrives at the school, his parents drive him, and they're in a broken down car. The other boys have to actually help them to get driving again. So I think that's maybe, there's maybe like an undertone of that, that that's one of the reasons that Spud initially doesn't fit in with the other boys. But we, um, Spud is quite a loner, finds it difficult to make friends. Um, there is another boy within his dorm, which is, who is a similar age. Um, they become quite close friends. We also learn that Spud is very well read. Um, he befriends one of his teachers, 
played by John Cleese, uh, nicknamed The Gov. He provides, of course, Spud with a lot of books to read. They have regular discussions on those books. And there's also um, a few love interests for Spud, uh, both in this movie and throughout the series. Uh, So a storyline throughout the trilogy of the, the movies and the book series. Spud learns that the school are performing Oliver Twist and decides to audition for that, um, eventually gaining the lead role. And also his his main friend is Gecko, who is a pale, sickly boy. Um, there's a lot of comedy about that he's quite accident prone, that he's always visiting the, the nurse. Um, unfortunately, Gecko does die later in the film after contracting cerebral malaria. And um, towards the end of the movie, Spud performs in the school play, gets a standing ovation. Uh, the boys, um, also known as the Crazy Eight, witness him kissing a girl, uh, Debbie, nicknamed Mermaid, and he finally fits in with uh, the other boys. So uh, the, I remember watching this, really loving it at the time, and um, I think a really good coming-of-age film. Um, quite uh, quite similar to Dead Poets Society, there's like elements of that which um, you can find in this film. But I, I guess, uh, what does everyone else think of the film? Um, there was some things I found um, interesting, some things I'm not. Um, it was clearly in the light an attempt at irony, but I don't think many of the performances encapsulated that, except perhaps John Cleese. Also, um, I have to give marks down to um, any visual representation of so in books since you've been especially things like virginia wolf yeah i liked it like i thought it was um like it didn't blow me away but it was sort of like a fun <laughs> funny film that yeah i i found myself liking the uh the main character and sympathizing with him a bit um it did remind me a lot of going to an all boys school and i think it captures that sense of juvenile crassness and like this weird system of rules and like peer pressure and this weird hierarchy and some of the different personalities that you find in an old boy school um especially like around middle school um or you know like just just when they're just just past puberty when they just like have all of this energy and all of this like sexual energy and curiosity but they're too immature to know what to do with it and that sense of just wanting to stand out and like be unique and be and be your own person but also wanting to fit in that's a really struggling and messy and often embarrassing thing and yeah i thought it i thought it captured that quite well i I have a soft spot in my heart for this film um i haven't seen it since it came out but i actually have read the books um and i think it captures something of the loveliness of it's quite rare, isn't it, to get a film where there's an ensemble group of kids and you really feel that they're a group of friends and you get all their quirkiness and all their little petty, you know, I went to an all-girls school, very similar kind of dynamic. Um, and I think there is something quite touching and endearing about that. And I think some of those issues about, you know, the nicknames and the people who were seen as weird and then, oh, if you kiss a girl, you're one of the cool cut guys now. I mean, that... It's all very enduring, isn't it? <laughs> so I think this is a really charming film. And yeah, 
if you're, if, I think it's, I've been thinking a lot about ed, different educational structures, you know, and the concept of being a scholarship kid at an elite school, boarding, single sex versus non-single sex. I've just gone onto the, the board of a very prestigious but mixed boarding school in the UK. So I've been thinking a lot about how it all works and how those sort of codified structures all work. And I think this is a really charming kind of wears it lightly, but does touch on some of those themes about how we set up the ways in which our kids are going to interact. So, yeah, I, I like this one. I um, I didn't really get the sense that they were friends or that or that um, Spud was really friends with any of the other boys, except for um, oh, really? that, that okay. one kid. It, it always felt like he was trying to get into the group or trying to impress them or at least just try not to be bullied by them. But it never felt, I don't know, it always just felt like a, a sort of an uneasy alliance rather than like genuine friendship. Or it didn't even, I don't know, it, uh, it's, it's weird yeah. to think of them as friends. It was more just like they were a gang of boys who enjoyed just causing havoc. I, I don't I don't know, maybe that is friendship in a way um, among boys, but yeah, it always felt a bit Maybe um, that's as temporary. good as it gets with boys in middle school. I mean, is that as good as it gets? I don't I think, know. <laughs> well, I think in a way it is because it's like you're only there together because you have to and you kind of just mm-hmm. do fun things together, but... I, don't, I think the only genuine friendships he had was were, was with that one white-haired kid and, and the teacher. Um, I think the other boy, I don't know, I never really got a strong connection between him and the other boys. And in fact, a few of them were pretty mean to him. So I don't know. Maybe in the book, it's a bit, it's a um, bit of, there's a bit more bonding. Just they, on they, the second rewatch of it, one thing that I thought was really sweet was um, that Gekko um, is the only person that doesn't call him Spud. He calls him Melson. So I thought that's like a sign of friendship. Yeah. And I think like towards the end of the film, there's a bit more respect because he's immediately an object of ridicule. And that, you know, even when he gets into the play, they they make fun of him relentlessly from that, which I guess you can see is a form of not intimacy, but that is a form of friendship for like we don't (laughs) often boys, high school boys don't know how to show affections so they show it through ridicule and mockery and that's kind of that's kind of how it works um but towards the end yeah it just it definitely felt like he was he was in the group and that was i guess part of his triumph that he'd found himself so he'd he'd made it through the social uh, obstacles or the social games and come out on top yeah i didn't get the impression that they were that friendly to each other to be honest but um, I do think like stories about um, building social capital, especially when there's class disparities, are um, important and obviously relevant to um, general culture. Um, like um, pretty much anywhere, like you'll have like people being like new, considered nouveau rich, and um, being excluded based on that premise, so not developing, being able to develop the social capital needed to. Um, properly elevate to the class even though they have the economic or um, institutional capital like education or money like even then like they'll be excluded on sometimes silly reasons like um, because of like what they eat or what they wear or things like that Mm. yeah and there's obviously like they go over the different ways you can gain status in the group whether you're good at sports or good with women or whatever it is um and he sort of try or flirts with trying on those different different roles in order to ingratiate himself 
Um, so I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Like that, that, and that experience is pretty universal, I guess, for everyone in, in high school. Like you're figuring out who you are and you're trying to fit in and, and it's that, it's that interplay between what you want as a person and, and also not knowing what you want as a person and trying on different things and seeing how that, how, how that fits in with people. Um, but it was strange because I never really got the sense that he like broke out as his own person. It always felt like he was sort of playing to their, the expectations of the other kids. It never felt like he quite gained a sense of of his, of his self. Um, I don't know. It was weird. Like there's that one moment where he, he's getting teased by them and he tells them to get lost and then sort of screams out the window. And I guess they all kind of respect him for that, but that was as close as he got to sort of pushing back against the peer pressure um the sort of his triumph is that he kisses a girl and they all see him kiss the girl and they all like him and think that's cool i don't know that didn't quite feel like a sort of a triumph of self-identity or but again i think that's as good as it gets i mean when do you feel you triumph over your self-identity i mean maybe i was 32 i don't know i mean (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah and of course he hasn't even hit puberty he hasn't even hit puberty by the end of the film so yeah, exactly it's, it's all pretty Baby early steps, days boys I know, steps. I know i know i <laughs> know maybe that's just me just thinking about like oh but this is the this is meant to be the trajectory of a film but no of course not it's a, it's a kid he's just trying his best i did have a question um why do you guys think the film was set when it was because it was set in 1990 and it was kind of against the backdrop of Mandela's release and you know the towards the end of apartheid and that plays into some of the narrative of the film but like why what was what was important about setting it as a period making it a period piece as a, as opposed to just setting it in 2010 what did that add to the film do you think you know, I did think I, I that, genuinely um, don't know <laughs> same um, I, I was looking into it thinking well I, I see that the book series was written well published in 2005 so the first book was um, published in 2005 and I thought maybe like a J.K. Rowling situation she started writing the books in the 90s which is why the books are set in the 90s um, hmm. but uh, then I had thought oh maybe if the author was in boarding school himself hmm. in the 90s but then I see that he was well he was born in 1975 so he would have just been finishing school around that time so, no, no, I don't know. <laughs> well, I guess he would have been a teenager in the early 90s. So <laughs> maybe there's a yeah, bi- biographical element to it. Um, maybe it was important that it was before mobile phones and, and the internet mm-hmm. and stuff. Like it was just this sort of snapshot of a particular point in time. But yeah, the, the stuff with yeah Nelson Mandela and the apartheid seemed a bit thinly explored. Like it was like either have it and make it a big part of the story or don't. It just... Just felt, mm. but maybe that's the point. It's like, it's just part of the fabric of South Africa. You can't really escape it, even if you're a kid who's just just trying to make it through classes and make friends at high school. That that all that stuff is in the background, and it sort of played into his his crazy parents and their weird relationship or their weird sort of conspiracy theories and things like that. So maybe it was part of that general embarrassment about having a a dysfunctional family. Um, yeah, I agree with you, Duncan. I think you either do it properly or don't. It's such a big thing. Mm. Um, I was just thinking, is it that because post-apartheid, those single-sex elite boarding schools didn't exist or were different? Is that the last era of that kind of institution? I have no idea whether that's true or not. I don't know, but the boarding school obviously had black and white students, so I don't see why apart- the end of apartheid would 
have changed things that much, but it might have. I don't know. True, true. Does his father's anti-communism um, develop later in the books, or was that just a bit of flavour? Felt like that what seemed important. And no, 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 it does. Yeah, it is. It is important. And actually, I was going to ask Jock, do you know if there were any follow-ups made? Do you know if it sort of, they did do all of them? It's just this is the one that got to the UK. Oh, they did um, three of the, so three of the books were made into films. There was a fourth book, but that was never made into a film. Yeah, I think it was, it almost came to fruition. Like they had a script and they had financing, but the main star sort of took off as a YouTube singer sensation. Oh, yeah. So that was, that kind of became his career and they didn't want to recast him. Um, but, you know, might not ah, be sign of the times. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, uh, the encroachment of uh, social media and, and TikTok ruined that. Would you recommend the sequels, Glenn? You know, I really liked them. Um, they weren't as good as the first film, but from memory, I think the they put on the first film on Sky Cinema. And then I think, I don't think they even waited until the next week. It was just... They put on the first film, then the next day was the second film, then the third day it was the, the third film. Um, so I watched them within like a few days. So I really did like them and the series as a whole, but I think the, the standout is the first film. Mm. All right, we might move on. Uh, Jock, would you like to tell us about your film? Sulu is um, a film depicting the historical battle of Zork's Drift. It features... Um, Michael Caine um, and um, and uh, was generally quite good. Um, the cinematography was good. The music was good. Um, the acting was great. My only the old criticism it would be that um, some of the lighting is um, making the British ones um, a bit too on the nose in terms of their evilness. Like um, I feel like it would have done better to have a lighting where it was explained that the colonialism was a result of um, like the structure of like the British army. Another thing that um, was a bit annoying was that they don't explain that it's part of the wider Anglo-Zulu war, so that uh, that the British started. I may be overthinking it, but I think like that could lead to the impression that um, the Zulus were the aggressors, which um, was very much not the case. But other than that, I think they treat the Zulus really well, especially for the six days um, and filming in South Africa. Um, they um, also gave um, the Zulus lots of agency in how the film was made, which um, even today, like um, major institutions like Hollywood or um, um, pretty much any film industry uh, struggles with any Western film industry. Yeah, it's worth saying um it, this was known at the time for being the one film that gave the Zulus the benefit of having really good strategy and good leadership. And the guy who wrote the film, um, well, the, the, the people who made it were really interesting because the director was an American who'd had to come over to the Brit- to Britain after the whole uh, McCarthy witch hunt so that he could continue his career. So he he was an interesting character and the guy who wrote it um i think is english but he um you'll like this jock he and glenn he specialized in scottish history and he wrote a fair amount about from the perspective of people who were the the wrong end of british imperial military adventures so i think both of them were you know they had to show ultimately it's kind of an interesting film i think because on the one hand it's this kind of boys own adventure of these noble brits who hold off this much larger zulu army 
But on the other hand, it's quite subversive because it actually gives the Zulus some kind of military dignity and credit for what they were doing too. So I think the, the filmmakers made it a far more interesting film than superficially when you see Michael Caine and the rest in their lovely Imperial Guards uniforms has any right to be, which I think is probably why it endures um, to this day. Um, so I think it's a really yeah, fascinating um, bit of film. I also feel like it's really amazing, like the humanity like they gave to like um, the Zulus and also um, the autonomy they gave them within the production because like... Um, even like books like Orientalism and stuff that um, developed the initial start of post-colonial theory weren't even written in 1964. So this all came out of just a general spirit of humanity rather than any sort of theory or literary text. Well, you say you say it wasn't out of theory, but in fairness, the director and the screenwriter were both paid up members of the Communist Party. So there is that. <laughs> um, it's also my fun fact about Zulu is the guy playing the Zulu king um, uh, Bruce Lazy, who was then a, a big leader in South Africa, was playing his great grandfather, who was a Zulu king. So that's kind of like a nice little bit of generational homage there. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, I thought it was a good movie, um, just as an action or just as a as a war movie. It was just really, really well shot. The way the battle is is portrayed is really scary and exciting and interesting you know you can see the strategies uh of both sides being put into practice um i love siege movies i think they're it's just a really interesting premise like and it, and it allows for lots of interesting drama like you've got the besieged people and all of their fears and anxieties you know sort of bubbling in this little this little cauldron of a, of a fortress um and then this kind of the way the Zulu are, are portrayed are just sort of almost this mythical warriors. Um, it's just, yeah, it's just a really exciting premise for a movie and it's just really well made. And um, something about like the Technicolor, it really made the, the film pop, I thought. Like, I don't know if it's the uniforms of the British and, and, and the, the Zulu warriors and their garb and the KwaZulu Natal sort of landscapes are just really beautiful and, and enjoyable to watch. So it was just kind of a feast for the for the senses for me. The whole um, Anglo-Zulu war reminds me of the Sun Tzu quote, um, know yourself and know your enemy and you'll win every battle. Um, and the British um, didn't know themselves, as in they didn't know their own capabilities. They were way too overconfident hmm. and uh, they didn't know the Zulus. And um, the Zulus just took advantage of that and... Um, yeah, and it's always interesting to me, like when situations where there's two armies that are like fundamentally different in their like their technologies and their approaches. Like it's not like you know World War One, World War Two, where you had you know similar technologies, similar strategies, whatever. I mean that's a simplification. But this is you know it's more like the Zulus maybe not as technologically advanced, but they know the landscape better. And I liked the use of sort of psychological warfare in the sort of the chanting and the war chanting and the fact that the British were able to sort of boost their morale through through returning with their own chants or their own war cries. I thought that was a sort of interesting clash of culture and um, these two sort of proud armies who just for some reason found themselves. I mean, you know, the, all of the colonial stuff, say what you want about it, but the soldiers themselves are just put there by the forces of history and they just have to fight for their survival 
Yeah, they're put there because of the ten the turns and um, the need for um, an ever-expanding um, vault of labor. Yeah, and 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 valuable minerals in the in the interior and all that and all these reasons that none of the soldiers are ever going to get to enjoy. Um, yeah, it, it was. It's it's sort of a complicated because in some sense it is sort of glorifying, you know, the British, uh, expand, you know, imperialism and, and whatever you want to say, um, this great British victory against uh, this indigenous population. But at the same time, the, the Zulus are given great respect by the characters and by the film. I guess one criticism is that they're not really given much character. Um, you know, the, the king is given some lines, but it felt like the the Zulus themselves were mostly just a, a crowd of people, a very impressive crowd of people, but not a collection of individual characters whose sort of motivations and, and humanity was investigated the, the way that the British characters were. No, that's true. Um, although I did give, I have to say, for 1964, I did give them credit for, as filmmakers, they did make an effort to go and find some oral history. I think in a way it's, it's, it's tricky, isn't it? Because... On the one hand, you've got the Brits who are incredibly famous and have written biographies and been glorified in British history for, you know, the intervening hundred or so years. And then you've got, obviously, because of the oral tradition, much harder to reconstruct the great famous Zulu generals. And they did try, I think, from memory. Um, yeah, so, so but, that's... yeah it's, it's very hard to pull it off, though, isn't it, I guess? Yeah, and, and supposedly the film is compared to a lot of other war films, pretty accurate in like the broad strokes. Like I know some soldiers were mischaracterized, but um, but they did consult like Zulu historians as well as as well as British um, history books, which I think was good. And yeah, as a production in South Africa during apartheid, it is quite impressive to involve the Zulu people in the the making and the um, the performance of the films, and that is what the film is named after, um, these people. Yeah. And, and, it's and, just, and they were it's given another, greater rights than, they were given greater rights than the audience of the film in South Africa, because the film was banned and, you know, black people were not allowed to watch the film because the um, South African government thought it would lead to riots, like this depiction of black people killing white people would lead to riots. However, exactly. the, the Zulu people were allowed to watch it, um, thankfully. Yeah, I think that's brilliant, isn't it? You can imagine this sort of South African at the time, white South African censorship office. Yeah, that's like these like Brits make this film that shows, you know, the victory of the small white minority over the, you know, the ignorant black herd or whatever. Yeah. You can just see, you can see how they might have given it filming rights, thinking that something rather different was going to come out the other end of it. Yeah, their faces falling. Pre- <laughs> They're watching it. Oh, <laughs> and uh-oh. then you watch it at the premiere and think, oh shit, yeah, maybe maybe this isn't for general circulation. I think that's yeah. hilarious. Yeah. Um, on a technical note, also, if anyone wants to go and watch it, it's worth trying to get um, a print. It, most of the cinemas it was shown in 35 mil, but it was actually shot, which was quite innovative at the time, in um, 70 mil. So like an IMAX, like an early predated IMAX type print. So if you get it on Blu-ray, try and get something that's been made from the 70 mil. I think there's a good Criterion Collection version, which looks, as you said, Duncan, just looks really vivid and gorgeous and amazing. Yeah, and, and the way the camera just moves around the battlefield just makes it feel really realistic and really interesting. I just I just loved being led around the world by the camera. It really makes you feel entrenched in that moment in history and that, that, that the chaos. 
turn for yeah. a wider cultural sense of um, Britain at the time because um, not long before, like there was a Mau Mau rebellion and um, the operation in which like they just um, started destroying all the evidence of like colonial claims and stuff and uh, in the midst of that you have like this film coming out which um, is um, not anti-colonial but um, certainly um, would be in the same sort of zeitgeist of um, seeing Britain's um, declining influence um, through this lens. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, this is the year when Kenya became independent. A lot of the East African colonies that had still hitherto been British were no longer. It's the year when my parents actually came from Africa to England. A lot of that diaspora got here at that time of Zulu when you were first starting to reassess and figure out what does our colonial heritage mean and how it's falling apart and why Britain may not have been the heroes of every story. So you're absolutely mm. spot on there, Jock. The timing is very... I mean, it was made on, a, on an anniversary, but nonetheless, it's, it's very key, I think. Yeah, and yeah. I, I think it resonates with um, sort of revisionist westerns as well. Like, it, the film was described or pitched as a western, you know, between the cowboys and the Indians, the Zulu and the British army. But like westerns of the 60s and the 70s, it was starting to sort of challenge some of those narratives about the good white colonizers versus the sort of savage natives um, and gives them a degree of sort of respect and humanity that um, clashed with previous kind of nationalistic accounts of, of British expansion or, or American expansion, Not whatever you want to call it. The title of John Stuart Mill, like his liberalism is... Um, strongly um, influenced with the idea of going out and civilizing like the white man's burden is still um, referenced in like uh, foreign policy advocates for like wars and stuff um, like um, we very much haven't moved past that I don't think and even today like Britain's still got cultural hegemony and um, we'll to struggle with that in this next century like that's decline uh, decline as um like these south african films and other films start to overshadow um britain's law in um everything from film to literature to plays like um what happens when shakespeare is no longer considered the epitaph of um world literature mm. like, hasn't um, that already ha- is britain really a cultural hegemon i feel that World War Two, at the very latest, is the moment when America becomes the cultural hegemon rather than Britain. I feel that I feel that moment's happened. I feel that's long gone. Um, I maybe don't. Maybe that's just me. No, I. It's hard to. It's hard to map influences. I mean, obviously, in language terms, it's still incredibly powerful. Um, I think in Australia, at least, it still holds great influence. Probably more for the older generations. But, you know, it's maybe probably a mix of Britain and America for younger generations. But it's still, yeah, it looms very large as as, a, as an influence. Well, um, like they sort of, at like least in you, Australia, that the myth or the more conservative myth of Australia is, you know, Captain Cook, the, the, the fleet arriving in Botany Bay, all that stuff, the British flag being planted in the sand. So it's still a big part of national identity, at least in gosh, Australia. I didn't realize. Yeah. yeah. OK. I mean, that Fair is play. challenged and that is that is. Uh, an ongoing debate and, and you know, the role of the indigenous people as, as the first Australians, but it's definitely yeah, still a big part of national identity here. Duncan, can I make a request? Uh, you know, when we've done all like 250 countries or whatever on this particular podcast series that you're doing, 
Yeah. Please, can you chair a kind of like history of the Western one? Because <laughs> when I was a kid, my dad loves Westerns. And so I hated Westerns because every time I want to watch something, if there was like a Western on Channel uh-huh. 2, that would yeah, yeah. be on. And I feel it's like this like lacuna in like my movie watching. And I'd love to do like a maybe six episode or something, just taking, like when you're talking about the revisionist Westerns, mm. just like taking us through mm. the journey of the Western. Um, yeah, no, that sounds fun. Yeah, we should. Please, can you do that? Thank you. <laughs> and it'd be great to do it, like, because obviously a genre that emerged from America, but it definitely present in other countries. You know, the spaghetti Western, uh, there's, you know, great Westerns in Australia and other, other sort of frontier countries as well, which is it'd be interesting to sort of compare and contrast. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, um, although in media sense, like America, it's certainly a Lipson in terms of like the globalization of American culture. Um, I'd say Britain still holds sway in a lot of other fears, like uh, sports. Like British sports is still um, recognized worldwide, whereas American sports, despite a ridiculous amount of investment into them, have uh, failed to take off in much of the world um, and um, are only really strongly recognized within America. This should be a good podcast, right? I mean, because I wonder if... I know they start off as British, but do they still get considered British? I mean, football may be just about, even though we're quite shit now, and I would see it more as a sort of German-Brazilian or something, but, like, cricket's a classic example, the ultimate colonial export, and the dominant country there, that is very much an Indian game. The Indians run it, they make the money off it, they pioneered the T20 format, and even there, I feel, it's not really English hegemony anymore, and it's Indian, so it's a good debate to be had, I think. (laughs) Yeah, but that's sort of the question, like, who, who's the best at it versus who is given, who, who's identified with it? And at least in Australia, like, we have the ashes, so we very much see Britain as our sort of counterpart in, in sort of the cricket stage. And yet, and yet, if you look at the Fox Sport um, viewer ratings, I think ashes up until about 2015 was the ultimate, like, rivalry. Mm. But now, because we're so shit, I think <laughs> there's, far, there's far greater viewership and excitement to me the ultimate rivalry in cricket now is Australia-India because they're the best mm. two teams, the best funded, the most competitive. And those are the matches. Like, even in England, more people tune in at stupid hours to watch India versus Australia in Australia than would for a, for an Ashes series. So I find it fascinating. <laughs> I, I, I guess, but I guess I still see it as this Commonwealth relationship that all traces back to Britain. So maybe its literal significance or influence in that sphere is not what it was, but it's still, I don't know, it's still obviously the, the, the catalyst or the progenitor of that, that those relationships oh, yeah. and, and, that, true, true. and the, the true, presence true. of those sports and, and the importance and those traditions um, in those countries. And also things like law, like um, British law um, is almost um, universal worldwide, um, mm. like with the of like the Napoleonic Code uh, and texts written by them in Europe, like... Um, Everywhere from like Hong Kong to Shanghai to um, Africa, uh, India, um, all of them have uh, generally um, retained uh, British law, whereas um, the Napoleonic Code hasn't really been exported as much. And um, 
as for colonial um, spread of like um, British cultural artifacts and like even like um, bagpipes, which were very uh, postmodern in the sense that they were invented um, as a replacement for the vacuum created by the Jacobite rebellions and the loss of Highland culture. But then were... really, I had no idea. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, then after that, um, they've spread across the world. So that now, like in bagpipe competitions, um, the people that win the most are um, either Canadians or Indians, um, and Scotland. Um, that is hilarious. I had no idea. Yeah, and every practically every graduation in Australia is accompanied by bagpipes. My mind's blown. That's why I love <laughs> Battles of Kingsgrave because yeah. it's so international, and you just learn so much stuff about how the world operates. It's amazing. All right, uh, we might move on to our final film, which I have chosen. So, Sotzi is a 2005 crime drama film directed by Gavin Hood and based on a novel by Athol Fugar. The film follows a teenager named Sotzi, which means thug, who lives in a Johannesburg slum and leads a violent street gang. One day, Sotzi shoots a woman and steals her car, only to discover a baby in the back seat. Rather than abandoning the child, Sotsi takes it home and cares for it. The film is very well made, um, and I found myself riveted throughout. The main actor, Presley Cheyenneaga, uh, conveys an amazing sense of menace and vulnerability. The film, I think, is a brutal depiction of the cyclical nature of violence and poverty and trauma. However, I, I also think it's fundamentally the story of a person rediscovering and reclaiming their humanity, or at least a part of their humanity, which I found intensely moving and hopeful. So, what did you guys think of Sotsi? I um, went back and read my original kind of blog post when I watched it originally, and I found it a little bit, um, not cheesy is the wrong word, that's too derogatory, but hmm. I just found it a little bit too, I don't know, schmaltzy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought it was safe because I thought the the lead performance was so strong, and it, mm-hmm. I think from memory it won a lot of awards, didn't it? So I think it's it's an incredibly strong lead performance and is worth watching for that. But I, I watched it again and I thought, oh, it's it's still just not it's still not gripping me um, mm-hmm. in the way that maybe it should. Um, but that yeah, that's just my take. Yeah, and, and a few critics have said that like you have to kind of believe that this hardened violent criminal is suddenly reformed by interacting with a baby but i don't know it sold me i I felt that a lot of the violence that sotsi displays in the early part of the film is like obviously the film doesn't sentimentalize it or it doesn't sort of apologize or or ask us to forgive sotsi for you know really horrible sadistic things but to me it always felt like sort of a performance or like something he'd been forced to absorb from the world around him. Like it was kind of like, you know, hunter be hunted. And, you know, this is how you, this is how you maintain respect. This is, and, and, and very much a sort of a defense mechanism um, against looking back onto, onto his childhood. Like that is a key scene at the beginning of the film where after they've killed someone and one of the, gang members is questioning Sotsi, you know, who are you? Do you have any decency? Who's your mother? Who's your father? And Sotsi just lashes out and beats the man really brutally. To me, that was like 
protesting too much. Like, obviously, he was already this deep conflict in himself where he knew what he was doing was wrong or he knew it wasn't. It didn't feel right. And the baby was kind of something that helped break that circuit um, and make him kind of reflect on who he was. And, and, and through seeing someone utterly vulnerable, reminded of himself as a child or, or seeing someone who actually needed him, just kind of broke him out of that mold a bit so i don't know it, it sold me and i think a lot of that is the performance in a way maybe it's the reverse engineered version of district nine or even Chappie, where you took you took quite good innocent people and put them in a brutalized environment and saw them get violent and frustrated mm. and film it's the reverse you see actually probably a good-hearted kid as you say mm. growing up in a very violent you know peer pressure to speak to spud you know this is the way you've got to act to get on in sort of like a very um, crime-ridden and lawless place. And rediscover, like you peel it back and rediscover his humanity through, in this case, finding a baby. In Vickers van der Merwe's case, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think there's a common theme there, isn't there, about environment versus inner, inner humanity. Yeah, and um, like a, a deep sense of like self-hatred and like hating each other and you know he there's the other interaction he has with the the old man in the wheelchair and, and sort of uh, mocking him and saying like why do you why do you go on when you live like a dog like just hates the fact that this poor old man is so vulnerable and so living so hard just hates that because it obviously reflects something about himself or some vulnerability he feels in himself or maybe that's just my reading anyway um but i also think like the, the original book, I think, was written during apartheid, and this was meant to be a slum that was sort of segregated from the rest of Johannesburg because it was majority black, or because it was all black people. Um, and the film is set after apartheid, but I feel like the, the sort of legacy of apartheid is still felt really strongly. And the fact that, you know, these group of people are all so downbeaten and so mistreated or, and that sort of generation of trauma and dehumanization is so deeply absorbed into their life experiences that you almost don't even need the kind of quote unquote, the white oppressor yelling at them and, and hurting them away. Um, that's sort of so absorbed that they're brutalizing each other now because that's just what they've been taught. Um, but you know, there's sort of like, economic aspects i think like you see the sort of the poor characters and the rich characters so that's kind of the new apartheid possibly presented by the film but i don't know i just got a deep sense of yeah just generational trauma like this kind of taught helplessness and this taught sense of like violence as the only way of surviving and asserting some kind of agency over your life yeah, and insofar as the protagonist is aware of that, um, knowing now he's got a baby, he doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to be that example. He doesn't want to be that environment. He's going to try and break the chain, which is incredibly courageous and incredibly daring, I think. Yeah, like he suddenly finds himself at this key point in which that cycle can be, you know, continued or, or interrupted. Um, and he's aware of that. And he's aware maybe, like, I'm not saved, but maybe this child can be saved or something. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Did you guys, uh, Glenn or Jock, get a chance to see the film? One vivid memory I have was the contrast of, like, the beautiful buildings compared to, like, the 
um, not beautiful buildings and the class disparity um, there mm. within the, and how visually appe- um, appealing one was uh, compared to the other. Um, what did you think of the scenes with the mother who he sort of initially forces to, to breastfeed the the child and then you know she sort of takes care of it more willingly and he, he's sort of less brutal towards her? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously, that's that's a little bit dodgy, isn't it? Because it is a, a bodily incursion and mm. the way that she then kind of comes to terms with it is a little bit like not falling in love with your rapist is too strong, but there it is with modern eyes, you'd be like, oh, <laughs> you know. Mm. Yeah, like it's, it's pretty uncomfortable. I don't know exactly what to think of it. Um, it felt like, yeah, there was some sense in, like some sense in which she might've, Obviously, she doesn't say it, but there's often there seems to be some sort of more softened understanding or, uh, between them. How we can sort of read that in narrative terms, but it did seem like I don't know. Like I, I guess what struck me more was the performance of um, Sotsi, um, and I noticed that a lot of the film is him watching. And the initial scenes of him watching are very predatory. So he's sort of watching the the slums and trying to find people that he can exploit or dominate or, or whatever. Um, but these scenes in the house with the breastfeeding lady also involved a lot of watching, but it, it felt like his eyes kind of softened as he was watching her. Like there's that predatory gaze sort of softened and it seemed more... I don't know, curious and some kind of humanity or compassion or, or gratitude sort of returned to his eyes through those experiences, sort of wordless experiences, very, I guess, prelingual experiences, because it's kind of like the, the the association with, yeah, childhood and mother's milk and the cot and, yeah, I guess, flashing back to the fact that we're all innocent as children uh, the only other thing I thought was like, I got kind of strong Christian vibes from the film, and apparently the book there's a bigger subplot about him interacting with a priest and sort of converting to Christianity a little bit, or, or sort of trying to get in touch with that. Um, and it felt like that story of redemption through compassion and love and ultimately sacrifice. The fact that he returns the baby to his parents and is then surrounded by police and we don't really know what happens next. I thought that that had a strong kind of like Christian or, or sort of religious aspect to it. Yeah, I would say it would be more religious. Um, like the hero's journey is um, found in much um, all um, spiritualities. Like it seems to be a common current throughout um, lots of them. Like um I don't remember his name, but some theorists did a unifying sort of um, attempt to unify spirituality through like the hero's journey and stuff. Mm. Um, and that where um, Dan Harmon, the author of Community, um, created a structuralized version of the hero's journey um, and is like based on the spiritual thinker's work. But I don't remember who the thinker was. Okay, because Joseph Campbell, I think, was the hero's journey guy, but this might be another person you're talking about. Yeah, it might be, yeah. Yeah. Don't doesn't ring a bell. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Uh we might leave it there if that's cool. Um 
So before we wrap things up, I was just wondering if there's any other South African films that you'd recommend or any other you'd sort of come across and we're interested in in maybe uh, watching in the future. I'm embarrassed to say I don't have other films. I'd love if any listeners have any recommendations to know more about South African cinema. And I feel I've been thinking about it a lot that in the kind of independent art house circuit in England and like film festivals, it seems that we get a lot of films, which is great from like North Africa and West Africa. Um, Mm. Like we get a lot from places like, I don't know, Senegal, Nigeria, Ivory Coast, a lot from the Maghreb, but we don't seem to get a lot from South Africa. So yeah, I'd love to hear recommendations if people have them. Um, Funnily enough, there's a few Australian made films um, that are set in South Africa one is Breaker Morant, which is a really good film, which is set during the Boer War, and it's about a um, trial of several Australian soldiers who are accused of killing some Boer prisoners, and it's based on a stage play. That's a really good film from 1980 that I'd highly recommend. Um, another one is The Power of One, which is a novel by Bryce Courtney, which was adapted into a film with Morgan Freeman, and... Uh, There's another one called Disgrace, which is set in South Africa, and it's about a school teacher who has an affair with a student. I think it stars John Malkovich. I haven't seen that one yet, but but apparently the the novel's really good. Um, Other than that, I'm trying to think of any other films I'd come across. I did hear of a movie called Schoonheed, um, which I haven't seen, but it's actually in the Afrikaan language. And it's about a man who falls in love with another man and just kind of becomes obsessed with him. So it's sort of this psychological thriller. But that's got, you know, really good reviews, a lot of critical acclaim. So I'd be keen to, to check that one out. But let us know if you've seen it, if you'd recommend it in the comments. Um, yeah, well, if that's everything, I might wrap things up. Uh, that brings us to the end of this installment of the movie Passport. Let us know what you thought of this episode and if you have any other South African movie recommendations. Um, And let us know what other world movies you'd like to hear us discuss. You can leave comments or questions on our WordPress page or join us in the Vassals of Kingsgrave Discord server. I'd like to thank my fellow hosts for this episode, uh, including Bina, Glenn and Jock. And thank you for listening. Goodbye, or as the South Africans say, Salah Gashem.